So we're in Matthew chapter 7, and it's verses 13 down to 29. Seven. I picked a good one. <laughs> Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from, the, from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out, oh, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would uh, be opened up to our hearts and minds tonight. For some of us, who need to come under the challenge of these words. We pray for your grace. I pray for help as I speak. Um, Lord, I pray, Lord Holy Spirit, that you would communicate what you want to say. Use this little time we have to do something so worthwhile for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me start by asking you a question. Um, have you ever had an... Uh, situation where you know something about a subject matter and someone's asked you about that and you're telling them about that area and you you're talking about something that you know about and they've asked you about but you can tell they're not really interested wow you guys are experts in lots of things because everyone knows that feeling you're talking and they're just appeasing you they're just nodding and you sort of think to yourself well good luck with that because it seems like you probably don't understand what you don't know. You don't understand the consequences of what we're talking about here. And maybe you have worked that out and sometimes we don't listen. Now Jesus has been teaching and it's been so great to spend time in the Sermon on the Mount, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it's an epic part of the Bible. It's the greatest talk, ever, greatest sermon ever given 
And he's coming to the end, and uh, he chooses, he doesn't have to, but he chooses a a really hard-hitting metaphor to wrap it all up. We just get used to the fact that there's this story you find in the Bible, build your house on the rock, not the sand. It's not a Sunday school song, you know, huff and bluff, and and it'll fall down like a a, a, um, poem or a... What are they called? Merits. Yeah, but it's like a merry girl. Merry girl. Nursery rhyme, thank you. I'm needing help. (laughs) Finish my words, someone. Like a nursery rhyme. It's a sort of quaint idea. But what if it's actually a warning about people who are listening and nodding and, oh, that's very good. Look at you. You're a good teacher. He's very good with his metaphors, isn't he? He comes up with new ones all the time. It's very interesting. And he cuts to the heart of every listener. He says, oh, you've been listening to all this stuff I've been talking about. Let me just tell you, if you don't put into practice what I've just been telling you, you will build your life on sand. And when you least expect it, the wind and the challenges of life will come. Maybe death will come. And your life will be washed away like a house on the sand. This passage is a challenging passage. It's not a cute little passage that you get a few little tips from. It's meant to be something that's weighty. And everyone who comes under it, me included, we're meant to feel the weight Of many of the words, especially verse 27, the rain and wind came and the house built on the sand fell with a great crash. So the question tonight is, what do I do with that? What am I meant to do with that? Is this just something I observe from a distance? A nice talk given 2,000 years ago, or does it have relevance for me? Am I meant to feel the weight of it? Me, Mr. Pastor, Christian, Decades of faith. Am I meant to feel weight from that? And I feel like I am. I was in tears this week as I read it and I pondered. I thought, wow, I felt challenged and convicted and I hope you'll feel that. I think there's a warning and three things that I came up with. There's a warning about self-deception and hopefully it, it can come up from there, Julia. There's a warning about spatial perception and about grace reception. And hopefully that'll make sense as we work through it. Three warnings, self-deception, spatial perception, and grace reception. So number one, self-deception. Who is Jesus talking about when he says in verse 21, not everyone will be accepted into eternal life in the end. Verse 23 seems a little harsh to me for gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who loves everyone, Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Does anyone else feel that? Like, who is saying that? Jesus? No, not Jesus I know. He would never say that. That's too harsh. Well, let's think about what's in the text. And if you had your Bible there, like, check it out. Um, Four things that we can um, see from the text about who he's talking to when he says... Go on, I never knew you. Well, these people that he never knew are professing followers of Jesus. They're ministering in whose name, if you looked at the text and had time to do a bit of study on it, you see they're ministering in Jesus' name. So the people that he says, I never knew you, 
Number one, they were ministering in his name. They called him Lord, which is a Greek word, Kyrios, and they used to say Kaiser Kyrios, which was Caesar is Lord. So if you said, instead of Caesar is Lord, you said Jesus is Lord, you're going against the tide, the current of society. You're putting yourself in a dangerous position. Caesar is Lord is a bit like saying Caesar has deity, the Son of God. To say Jesus is Lord is a big call. These people are doing that. And not only that, they're saying the double word, which is for a Jew, something really important. Um, Lord, Lord. For us, it sounds like a stutter. But for them, that means I'm really serious about this. Lord, Lord. David said when he was praying about Absalom, 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 son, son. He was doubling the words to say to God, I'm really serious about this. Save my son, save my son. So these people who Jesus said to, get away from me, I never knew you, are people who are ministering in his name, they're calling him Jesus is Lord, they're saying Lord, Lord, and then even it says they're prophesying, they're foretelling and foretelling in Jesus' name, they're telling truth, (coughs) they are leading people to being liberated from demons and healed from diseases, these people are successful in ministry. Jesus turns to them and he says, I've never known you. John 17, Jesus said, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life that you might know God. So there's a connection between knowing God and eternal life. This is eternal life, a relationship with God. So when Jesus says, Get away from me, I never knew you, it's like he's saying, you, I don't know you, and if I don't know you, what do we know that means? You won't enter into eternal life. If you don't know me, you don't get life. So, who on earth is he talking about? You don't want to be these people. You don't want to be the people who are ministering in his name successfully, yet don't get known by Jesus. I wonder if you feel like the arrow pointing at your heart. Or are we all inoculated? We've all got it sorted. There's no one who could possibly be sitting in this room who could maybe be in that that category of not knowing Jesus. I think what he's saying is you can be incredibly close to genuine spirituality but not be saved. You can be around the furniture of the gospel for decades, but not know the author, not know life, not have eternal life, not have your roots going down into Christ, not be built on a rock. This is a warning about self-deception. You know, it's weird. It's so weird in the Bible. King Saul lost it completely, but he ministered in the power of the Spirit. Judas ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. But completely got it wrong. Isn't that weird? Sometimes we look, well, if you're doing that, you, you must have it right. My concern, as I was preparing this, I thought, you know, it's so true. I wonder if right now you are sitting there thinking about the person that this message might be for. 
or someone maybe in the morning or someone who could hear this message uh, as a podcast. I reckon that's what Pharisees do, to be honest. I think Pharisees sit there and go, hmm, who's this message for? But people with soft hearts say, God, I don't think it's for me, but I might speak to me. So let me encourage you not to take that easy path of thinking maybe this is a challenge for someone else. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, gentleness, kindness. These are the fruit of the Spirit that are proof that there's been a work wrought in our heart. And when we don't have that growing in us, I guess it's a question mark. We should think to ourselves, have I got myself accessing the real deal? Or could I, could I be in that place of self-deception? So he talks about that. I think he's a warning. Um, and then he, he moves on, sort of unpacking it, I think. He starts talking about this idea of spatial perception. Anyone good at spatial perception? Any architects here? We've got Gary Hodden in the morning. He'd be great. <coughs> Spatial perception. You must be pretty good at being an artist. You're okay with it? Sonographer, I have to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of us are better at it than others. Um, verse 13, Jesus is talking about gates. Gates that are wide and thin. Roads that are broad and narrow. And uh, it's another amazing metaphor that Jesus uses. He says, small is the gate. The Old King James Bible, the, the thee and thou version of the scriptures, has this little passage. It says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. But straight is spelled S-T-R-A-I-T. <coughs> Anyone who wasn't here in the morning know what straight Straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Is anyone familiar with that old word? Straight. Straight is the gate. It's not the GHT version. There's water bodies that are straight, aren't there? You know, like your body water bodies are straight? Yeah, well, I think if it's these words, it's because. It's a challenging stretch of water. The straight that is spelled S-T-R-A-I-T is a word that means to be crushed. To be crushed, to be strangled. You're in dire straits. You're in a straight jacket. Jesus is saying straight is the gate. The gate that gets you into eternal relationship with him looks like a crushing gate. It looks like it's going to squeeze the life out of you, which makes sense, doesn't it, when you think of what it takes to be a Christian, to die to the old life. Life biblically means spaciousness. Life is depicted time and time again as a, a spacious place. It means to be at large, life at large. It means to, to be free in the true country that your destiny is. There's a tiny little gate, Jesus says, that leads to a vast, spacious life. But the wide road, 
it looks like it's opening up to just more and more spaciousness. But when you go down it, you end up choking and dying. It's a trap. It's a wide road. Spaciousness actually leads to spiritual narrowness. And narrowness leads to spiritual spaciousness, which is life. Does that make sense? I mean, that's the idea of the wide and narrow road. So I guess, in its simple sense, the metaphor makes sense. But <clears throat> what are the two roads? What are the, the comparison? What are the two trees that we just read about? What are the two roads, the two houses? Is it this? There's a good way to live, to try to live out the Ten Commandments and obey what God says about living our life. Is that, there's one way, <coughs> and you know it's hard to live that and be good all the time, and then there's a wide way that, you know, you can tell who's on it because they're all doing their own thing. They're all sinning and, and think about sin, that's the wide road. Is that what it is? And often that's the way that we think. There's this good road um, following Ten Commandments, and there's a bad road that isn't doing that. The problem is that doesn't fit in with what he's saying. Because the two trees were exactly the same. In the two houses, you didn't know one was going to fall until they fell. They looked the same. The two disciples can't tell on the outside. So if you go back into the sermon, you might expect to find some examples of sort of like two homes, two disciples. And that's in fact exactly what you find. If you go back in the sermon, you don't find Jesus saying, there are some people that are really bad and they never pray. And then you've got good people on the narrow road and they pray. What, is, what does this sermon tell us? Both people on both roads pray. But the ones on this road, do it for the acclaim of man. Some people, back in the sermon, give generously. It's not some give and some don't. They all give. But some give so that people could play a trumpet. And they could have the acclaim of man and woman. And others do it for the glory of God. Jesus in the sermon has been talking about hard stuff. I think it's fair to say that the natural state of the human heart is to believe that if I do enough good for God, he's going to reward me. I would put it to you, you go looking and try to find a way of living that doesn't essentially pick up on karma. That doesn't essentially pick up on God is looking for good people. And if you're good enough, if you can present a good enough argument to him, surely he's going to, I guess, let you in, <coughs> in the end. And uh, I know that this is rampant in the church because you hear it very often with a person who loses a loved one, who is not a Christian. And I, you know, honestly, I'm not trying to be judgmental in this, but just point it out. It's interesting, you can have a, a very mature Christian and lose a loved one who clearly has not shown any interest in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And they'll say something like this. Yeah, they, didn't, they weren't a churchgoer, but they were a very good person. Probably put a lot of Christians to shame. Very good. 
very good person. And I often think, wow, that's weird that you say that because at the core of our theology says no one's good enough. What do you mean? Do we get to heaven? Do we get to the new creation by being good enough? You know what the person should say? God's good, isn't he? God's good. They weren't good enough, but God is. Maybe he got through them. And we all say, yeah, amen, that's, tr that's the truth. That's the only hope. Because if you don't have fruit in someone's life, the Bible says there's no hope, but just the hope that somehow God got through to them on their deathbed because on all other examples of fruit, it's just not there. The gospel says that God gives you a perfect record in Jesus Christ by faith. That's what the gospel says. It's totally not of our worthiness, but because of what Jesus has done, when we receive that by faith, we are totally accepted, delighted in, treasured by God. And then we live for the rest of our lives completely for Him, by His grace. On the surface, both people look the same. But the Christian is doing it and living, trying to live God's way out of a completely different position and out of a different motivation. Some people believe they're saved completely by sheer grace and others by trying to control God. He says in the passage that we heard, <coughs> read out, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. So what is that day? That day is judgment day. A judgment day. And what do they say? These people, they come, they come to before Jesus judging them, their life, whether they're going to live forever or not. And what's their response? You might have a, you know, have a Bible in front of you maybe, but they say, did we not? Did we, did we not do this? Did we not do that? What is that betraying? What is their theology? Did we not? Did I not do enough? Have you not been watching? I have been doing stuff. And Jesus says, I don't know where you got that. Not enough. Would you agree that the broad road has heaps of people on it? If the broad road is a road that trusts in one's own righteousness, in one's own ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Because churches are full of those people. People that don't go to church are those people. People that go to the local Baha'i temple are those people. People that go to the. Like, pick a religion. It's a broad road because everyone's on it. It's the natural place for the human heart to end up. Two roads, one good and one bad, not because on the good road people are doing enough good things, but on the good road they are trusting in nothing else but the finished work of Jesus. Nothing else. The gospel is narrow going in, isn't it? Grace reception. It's a narrow way going in. It takes radical repentance. 
The sermon began with Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. In fact, what he means is, blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit. Happy, more than happy are those who look at their own righteousness and go, I've got nothing. Like nothing. The typical thing is, I'm not perfect, am I? But I'm not as bad as her. I wasn't pointing at anybody. (laughs) I was straight in the middle. We try to compare ourselves to someone else. But to be truly bankrupt in spirit is the narrow entry. It's to come before God and say, I'm not trusting in anything I've done. Not how many people I helped across the road, what I gave, some, like, not some sort of um, promise I gave you when things were bad. I'm coming completely spiritually bankrupt. That's the narrow path. It's a crushing path, the straight gate. It's, I've got nothing. Oh, gee, I feel vulnerable if I'm trusting only in you. And that's why people don't want to do it. Because people deep down want to, as I've said before, the classic funeral I was at taking, and they insisted, this non-Christian family, of having... I did it my way, you know. There's nothing like seeing that at a funeral. That is a group of people giving the bird to God. That's what that is. Saying, hey, you think this is a spiritual thing? We did it our way. We'll do whatever we want. We'll come to heaven. We'll storm it. No, you won't. You don't get to tell God what to do. Is that how you're living? Are you going to get to the end and say, Forget about um, some Christian song. I did it my way. I'll do for me, thanks. It is a narrow gate. And it's a narrow gate of exclusivity in in faith. Um, People have every right to say, surely there are more than one way to God. Surely. There's lots of pathways. (laughs) And um, surely... God will accept good people who don't necessarily follow Christianity. And what is the answer to that? But there are no good people. And that's a question for you to actually think about, because that's easy to say. But I want to ask you, are there good people? And I think personally the answer is, well, there, are, there is good. But is there anyone who's thoroughly good? Is there anyone who's good enough? Perfectly good? And the answer is No. The narrow gate says there's one way. The the gospel says there's one way to repent before Jesus, bankrupt spiritually, and following Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. It's narrow. Jesus made a way for us to go through something that squeezes and is narrow, but the end is spacious. Amen? The end is spaciousness. And you, we, we know that in our life, don't we? Like, we choose to do our own thing, sin, and then all of a sudden we have an addiction. I don't, get it. I don't want this on me. Jesus says, I told you it would be no good for you. Why do you keep doing it? I just, I, And all of a sudden, we're not free anymore. But Jesus says, no, give it up. Give your life to me. Trust me. And suddenly, things start getting spacious in our lives. 
when the gospel comes in to us, and we know that we are a person of value based in nothing, nothing other than sheer grace, then we know we're, we're absolutely and totally adopted, accepted, loved, treasured, delighted in by the only person in the whole universe whose opinion counts. Has anyone found that easy to do? I find that quite hard. I sort of feel like I know the jargon. But I'm constantly looking for other stuff to prop me up. Anyone else know what that's like? <coughs> like you want to believe that God's opinion in Christ about me is all that matters. But I keep on sort of looking in the mirror and going, you look pretty human to me. You have needs. Needs of whatever they are. And I, I, as I was preparing this, I just sort of sensed that God was saying, you know, John, all those ways that you try to be affirmed and secure your identity outside of me, they're all sandy. Every one of them is sandy. Come to the rock. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter. You're not chasing their opinions. You're rock solid in my opinion. It's called being self-differentiated from the junk around you, sucking you into their carnage. Right? That's the counselling terms of it. <coughs> to be self-differentiated is to be on the rock. Hallelujah. They'll save you thousands of dollars if you're on a counsellor, find it out. Like, <laughs> put your grounding in the rock and actually believe it. You can't, you can't do it quickly, but just keep seeking it out as treasure. Can't, what does it mean that in the heavenly realms I have everything in Christ Jesus? What does that mean for me? Keep asking that. And all of a sudden you realise you're building a house on rock and not sand. And then this challenging stuff comes and you watch other people's things they've built up fall and you watch what God has done in your life on rock that matters stand. And you look back later in your life, Lord willing, and you can say, he told me the truth. And we get, Leah and I get a little bit older in our lives, and we can look back now with a little bit of perspective as we watch four kids growing up and making good decisions, and they're not perfect at all. Jesus is, and his grace is. But over time, I'm sort of starting to get a sense that I think Jesus tells the truth. And the more we believe it, the more our life is on the rock. And the more our friends don't believe it, we watch them just drop and their life falls. And we've watched them make bad decisions 10 years ago on this and this, and we go, wow, that doesn't look right. Fall, fall, fall. And man, midlife when you lose your marriage and you lose your kids and it's just like, it's a crash. It's a crash. It's carnage watching your, your best friends get divorced. And, and you can see it coming. And you're like, wow. And then they walk away from faith altogether. And you're like, man, what were you on? Sad, rock. Wow. Wow, you're one of the ones that Jesus talked about. And if you look at me and say, you could never be me, that's not the truth. My best mate's an atheist, but I grew up with 20 years serving God, knew the Bible like no one else I knew. He is an atheist now. How did he get there? He got there day by day, minute by minute, choice by choice. We said, no, I'm choosing sand. There's too much pain in my life. I'm going sand. I want...
And you know this stuff, don't you? You know people in your life. Some of us are right there, building on sand. We come to Christ one at a time. It would seem, Jesus says, um, there's a road that leads to life. They will say to me, they will say to me, Jesus said, they will say to me, you don't get to sneak in underneath your grandpa's coat, it would seem. They will say to me, each one of them will come to me as the judge, and they will actually give the reason. Do you know me? Do you know me, Jesus is saying. My grandpa did. It's not the question I'm asking. Do you? My wife knew. My wife prayed for No, no, you. What if the narrow road is one stream of people coming to Jesus after we die? And he says, why do I let you into new creation? Into the spacious life that will last forever? And what is your answer to that? Some of, us, <coughs> some of us have been told all our lives that we aren't worthy. Some of us don't have a problem in feeling we're not good enough. You're like, tell me something that I don't know. I've been told that all my life. And, and I want to encourage you in Jesus' name that you are so worthy that Jesus, who had spaciousness par excellence, he, he had everything. He was God. He had everything. And he chose the narrow path for you. He chose to be squished and crushed down into this humanity, this incarnation, and then to be led a, along this pathway, a narrow path to a cross where they would pull his beard out and strip him naked and rip the, the flesh off his back so that he'd hang on a cross by the people who actually he created. And why did he do that? He did that for us. Huge yet curtailed, free yet nailed. Jesus went through ultimate narrowness so that he might be given the name above every other name. And he has the ability to give that, his name to anyone. So where are you at tonight? Are you trusting with your life in nothing but sheer grace? Or something else? Because sheer grace is sweet. It's sweet. And there's no other word for it. Sheer grace is a freedom from self-deception. Sheer grace is an ability to see spatial perception that it looks narrow but it's not it's going to take me to a spacious life knowing God and the power of the spirit in my life and it's all about grace it's available let's let's um, just be quiet maybe the band could come up get ready and lead us in some worship let's I hope we could stop and um, I guess do, do your business with the Lord. I'm not actually going to ask you to sort of respond anyway publicly, but I, I, um, I encourage you, just maybe with your eyes shut, to think about your heart.
upon us. There's mystery. But deep thankfulness. Sheer grace. A narrow road that you know what, what Jesus is asking you to give up to go into that crushing gate. Because you've got to give it up. You've got to, you've got to abandon the stuff of lordship of my life. And so Jesus, I'm trusting. I'm throwing in my lot with you. All you. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. Lord Holy Spirit, I do just thank you that you minister in ways that are wonderful. For those of us who need to be brought back from the sand, given the rock, we need your grace. Thank you that there's enough of it.